Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Gun Barons, the, the Weapons That Transformed America and the Men Who Invented Them, is the latest book by John Bainbridge, Jr. It, it describes how American history was changed through the invention and refinement of repeating weapons and how mass-produced weapons, such as the Remington and Colt revolvers and the Spencer repeating rifle, contributed to the settlements of the American West and the Union's victory in the Civil War. Although those weapons helped save a divided nation, they also planted seeds that would divide our country country again just a century later. The book is published by St. Martin's Press, and it brings Mr. Bainbridge, who is both a journalist and a lawyer, to our show now. Welcome. Hello. How are you, sir? Okay. I'm glad we were able to get you. Uh, Your book is set in the 19th century, but the U.S. is currently in the middle of a great gun-buying boom that shows no sign of, of letting up. The annual number of firearms manufactured has nearly tripled since 2000. It spiked sharply in the past years. Is that a continuation of the stories you tell in this book, or do you think that this is an, an anomaly based on current situations? Uh, my guess is, I mean, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a great uh, devourer of, of uh, current events. I mean, I certainly follow the news like everybody else. Um, you asked me a question that I think requires a little bit of expertise that I don't have, but I'll give you my uh, off-the-cuff reaction. I think that it is a uh, trend that's continuing. Uh, there's been an interesting development in the gun-buying uh, public, uh, and that is that uh, there's been more minorities and more uh, women buying guns, a lot of first-time uh, gun buyers. Now, um, I suppose there's there are a variety of explanations for that, but i leave that to the uh, social scientists. And the modern historians, especially the historians who a few decades from now who can look back and tell us where we were far better than I. Well, currently, according to a 2018 survey conducted by the nonpartisan small arms survey, which monitors gun ownership, there are around 400 million guns in the United States at this time. And in the past few days, in fact, in uh, the past few months, or even a couple of years, we've seen uh, a number of mass shootings. Just the past few days, we had the ones in Buffalo and you Valdi. You certainly have. They've been uh, shocking, horrific events. Anyone uh, anyone with a heart uh, uh, just uh, aches for that, especially those with children and grandchildren. I count myself among those. It's just, uh, it's just something that's hard to swallow. It's hard to, uh, I guess, come to terms with. Well, it's troubling, but isn't much of the story you tell in this book a somewhat positive one that involves inventiveness, the westward expansion in the 1840s, the Union's victory in the Civil War, although there were a lot of bumps along the road even then? Uh, yeah, well, it's positive in the sense that people were uh, inventing and people were creative. I, I find in these characters, uh, not all of them were, were shining examples of humanity, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, they were people who, like many other inventors of that era, were were coming up with devices and changes in devices uh, of uh, in an extraordinary uh, an extraordinary fertile time in the American industri- in American uh, intellectual history. And I found that fascinating. I, 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 you know, I'm somewhat interested in firearms myself. Um, and it, and I, I found that uh, that period of time was enormously uh, enormously attractive, uh, so far as inventiveness is concerned, so far as boldness are concerned. For example, um, a couple of these uh, uh, characters uh, promised to do things that they were in no position to do. For example, Samuel Colt uh, wanted to. Uh, I mean, yeah, his first venture uh, failed. Uh, and left him without money, except he did have a patent. Well, he ended he up, went bankrupt uh, a couple of times. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. But he what, what happened was that he, when his gun business took off, that's what really launched him. Uh, I think the the Colt firm itself, years after you know Colt's death, went bankrupt as well. But he went bankrupt early on uh, with his first uh, revolver venture, which was uh, he launched in 1836, and then eventually went kaput um, just a few years later. But he, when the Mexican War hit, he decided he would uh, work on that patent and turn out a gun that was better than the one that was before. And he did. He leaked leaked up with a fellow named Samuel Walker, who was a rather flamboyant uh, sort of cavalier uh, Texas ranger and soldier. 
and together they put they came out with a gun that established uh, that, that really set him on the path to riches and from then on he didn't stop but didn't things um, really take off after the pointed bullet was introduced in 1848 the pointed bullet did, did help um, but I mean, the that there were some problems actually with soldiers getting uh, used to the pointed bullet. For example, uh, Colt's first revolver that was successful, called the Colt Walker, was this enormous thing, and you were inst- and you had to shove ball and powder uh, down each individual chamber of a cylinder. Now, sometimes the pointed bullet, which was uh, which would uh, was aerodynamically better. The soldiers would shove it in with the point first. The result was that a lot more powder was able to be put into the cylinder, and the thing blew up. Hmm. So uh, they, they, uh, the pointed bullet was of assistance, and the pointed bullet, uh, what was really, really uh, made a huge difference was the development of the cartridge, less so than the point of the bullet, the, the self-contained cartridge. And that was the thing that uh, mattered. That was the thing that could make a uh, repeating weapon. That's what, made, magazine. that's what made his gun... Uh, different from the other guns with revolving cylinders that had been no, invented. Not, no, not not at that point. Uh, he didn't. He didn't get it. He stayed with the with the cap and ball system mm-hmm. for a, a good while. It was the it was the other people who got involved in that. Winchester did, mm-hmm. uh, and there was a fellow named uh, Smith and a fellow named Wesson who got together. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who worked on the self-contained cartridge. And what's what's uh, I found fascinating in this is that they built on uh, a design that was created by a fellow named Walter Hunt. And Walter Hunt was a New York inventor, uh, and he invented a huge number of things, uh, many of them useless. Uh, but he just was a passionate inventor, and he came up with a, a gun that shot uh, self-contained cartridges, or used self-contained cartridges, in a magazine under the barrel. And that patent was the one that eventually led to the uh, Smith & Wesson uh, uh, cha- uh, magazine guns and the Winchester guns. And uh, Walter Hunt always had uh, financial problems, so he ended up um, selling his patents uh, for to pay bills, and especially to feed his children and to pay the patent uh, uh, draftsman who drew the, uh, uh, who drew the patent drawings. But he also invented a thing called a safety pin. Uh, which he sold for $400. So Walter Hunt is a name that's been forgotten, um, but his legacy lives on in a whole lot of places, uh, including guns, which now, is which is a, another reason to think of that there's a, this myth out there of the sole inventor. Um, many times an invention is just a development that was started before with somebody else, and somebody else has refined it and then locked, its, uh, locked it into a patent. Now, Samuel Colt had worked in his father's textile plant. Is that where he developed some familiarity with tools and machinery? Uh, yes, he did. He developed some uh, familiarity uh, with tools and also with chemicals. Uh, that was where he uh, he got most of his interest. And he developed, uh, he, he uh, started to make money by running around the country doing laughing gas tours, using some of the knowledge that his uh, father had given him. And he would go places and rent a hall and uh, decide he would uh, invite people in for a fee, of course. And he'd let them sniff laughing gas, nitrous oxide. And they'd uh, perform in various uh, silly ways, sometimes pugnaciously. And uh, that would be a a great source of entertainment for people. Uh, For that, um, but that's where he got some of his training was in his... uh, in his father's uh, father's workshop, he also read a thing called Compendium of Knowledge, in which which gave him all kinds of information uh, about uh, the physical objects. So that's uh, that's what he that's where he started. Of course, he's, he was also a huckster. He could uh, he would uh, make up tales and um, and uh, he was a hell of a salesman. And he also liked to uh, liked explosions, didn't he? In fact, he was expelled from school after he caused a fire through an explosion that's right well he uh, he he uh, he decided to sh- shoot off a cannon <laughs> and um uh, yeah he, he he did like to blow things up um it was he, he was uh, he liked to do that ever since he was a small child as a matter of fact he uh set a little raft afloat uh and it was a july 4th he was a teenager and he set this raft near where uh in a little pond near where his uh 
family lived in Ware, Massachusetts. And he sent a lot of flyers around saying, come see, uh, Samuel Colt will blow a raft sky high. So uh, people came, and it was a beautiful July 4th day. It was a Saturday. And everyone came to see what Samuel Colt was going to do. And so he had a system by, uh, by which he could electronically set off an explosion underneath a raft uh, that would be spectacular. He thought everyone would love that. Unfortunately, the raft drifted a little bit where it shouldn't have, and the explosion missed, missed its target. And essentially what it did was spew water, especially muddy water, all over everybody, uh, such that they were not real pleased with him, and they chased after him. But uh, uh, he went away, and he escaped, partly with the help of a fellow named Elijah Root, who became eventually his uh, uh, master mechanic and uh, helped to create the Colt Empire. But Colt did, yeah. He was at school, and he decided to um, blow, shoot a cannon. So they did this, and they they set it off, and um, uh, much to everyone's dismay. Um, and he, he, I've forgotten what he exactly what he said. It was something like, "This is for Mister Fisk. Tell him, tell him my name is Colt, and I can kick like hell." So um, they found that that was not something that suited the uh, academic in, uh, academic atmosphere at the time. So he was. Uh, asked to leave, and he did. He also had some success in making explosive underwater mines. He was all over the place. You say he was a bit of a huckster at the same time, and I, I was interested in learning that he received his first patent in England and not the United States. There were a lot of people who did that. As a matter of fact, I think Walter Hunt did that as well. Uh, the exact reasons for that I, I have forgotten. Uh, I think they wanted to make sure that they could secure uh, the patent over there, um, perhaps for the market. Uh, there's a reason for that, but frankly, uh, Leonard, I, I've forgotten it. Uh, but that that was the case. Um, and as I said, Walter Hunt got his patents and they moved first. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is John Bainbridge, Jr. His book, Gun Barons, The Weapons That Transformed America and the Men Who Invented Them, is published by St. Martin's Press. Before we leave Colt, uh, a couple of things. First of all, uh, is it ironic that uh, a malt liquor has been named after him and his gun? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, I mean, I certainly think he would uh, be very flattered by that. Uh, he put his name on everything. Um, and he also liked to drink uh, a whole lot. In fact, <laughs> that probably uh, weakened his health and contributed to his uh, demise at the young age of 47. But no, I, I, you know, Colt put his name everywhere as he possibly could. And, I, and um, so I, I think he'd be thrilled. Was word of the success of the Texas Rangers using Colt's weapons in their battles against the Comanches an important factor in his ultimate success as a gun and rifle manufacturer? I think it was. Uh, it, it certainly initially it was the the uh, fellow who led the Texas Rangers in their battle with the Comanche, which became uh, uh, quite famous at the time. It was in June of 1844. Uh, wrote a letter to the uh, uh, to the Texas military authorities, saying attributing his success uh, against an uh, against a foe that outnumbered him substantially. He contributed that success to the uh, Colt revolver. Um, now. The company went bankrupt, as I said, uh, and the, the gun itself, while novel and uh, useful and got some use in, in one of the Seminole Wars, it was not as uh, – it, it really didn't have the qualities that would make a gun really successful uh, even then. Well, you had to so reload, didn't you? Uh, so if uh, the uh, the Native Americans were using bows and arrows – and you had one shot in your gun, it was pretty equal battle until revolvers came along. That's right. Uh, that's right. And actually, some of the Indians had seen revolvers beforehand, uh, but, um, but uh, they had been used in force uh, by the Texas Rangers at that time. Uh, yeah, you had to load each, each, uh, each gun individually, but with the Colt, the, uh, the, the Patterson revolvers, so-called, because they were made in Patterson, New Jersey, uh, were five-shot revolvers, uh, and you could shoot five times without reloading, and then a lot of us carried a sec second cylinder, 
cylinder is the thing that contained the various uh, cartridges and, and revolved around uh, to allow each one to get lined up with the barrel, which is why they're called revolvers. They carried a separate cylinder with them, and they could load that fairly quickly if they learned how, especially if they were tough when, especially, and when they were under fire. Uh, but so, but Colt's success. I mean, he continued to parlay that success with the uh, with the uh, C- Comanches by using his contacts with this fellow Samuel Walker, who was a, a, rain, a ranger who went into the Mexican War, and he also he also uh, lavished uh, the uh, Jack Hayes, who was the leader of the uh, Texas Rangers against the fight with the Comanches. He lavished him with praise and said how wonderful he was. Um, so he, he was continuing to mine that uh, for success. But after the Mexican War, he was all set. Well, you you said that they, the the uh, guns had five shots, but we tend to talk about the six-shooter. <laughs> That's, That's something right. that comes later. Do you want me to hold off on that until we get a little more into the story? Well, that's all right. The six-shooter came around just because it came to be because that was his next gun. Mm -hmm. The one he developed with Samuel Walker shot six times and not five. Now, the the story you tell in this book takes place between the Mexican-American War in the 1840s and the Civil War and then Reconstruction at the end of the 19th century. Um, But what about the role of guns in the slave trade? Rolls of guns in the slave trade? Yeah, I mean, um, we're, we're talking about guns that uh, are part of American history, whether we see it all as positive or not, that's a whole other matter. But I don't, I don't think too many people, other than uh, a few dissident politicians today, think of the slave trade as anything uh, positive in the history of the United States. No, I think that it, it, it is not a positive element. So far as the gun trade in the, in the slave trade. Well, well the, the guns were used to keep people in line, weren't they? Oh, sure. Sure. Um, uh, I mean, guns were, like, guns were used for ill and, and for good. Um, to the extent that the, the, the slave trade used guns, to the extent that uh, the t- tyrants used guns. Hmm. Or they used, tyrants used guns today. They uh, serve as a force of evil. And later, uh, terror groups like the Ku Klux Klan used guns, sure, to scare did. people. And that, in fact, there was a there was a great movement uh, to arm uh, black Americans because the uh, the Ku Klux Klan had guns. There was a lot of uh, a lot of gun. There was some gun rights movement in the in the black community because they were facing white supremacists who were armed far better than they. Another one of the people you write about is has a really odd first name, Ella Fillet. Ella Fillet Remington. Well, think, yeah, Ella Remington. Ella Fillet. Okay. At least that's what I, I read in some book is that, that that's how he his family pronounced it. Now so, you uh, describe him as a romantic youth with pacifist leanings who wrote poetry uh, before he founded the company that bears his name. Uh, a, a pacifist who was involved in firearms creation? <laughs> well, uh, I think he changed his mind, or at least, uh, at least, uh, at, at least, uh, uh, the fervor of having uh, succeeded in the. Uh, uh, I, I, you know, who knows what what he what led him to change his mind or to uh, be comfortable with firearms. The uh, there's a lot of that stuff in the Remington. Uh, story that is that, that is legend um, I got those quotes from a uh, a Remington history that was published back in 1956 and then was republished in the 70s uh, I'd love to have seen the originals of that but um, I tend to believe it's true um, uh, but uh, the Remington's are, they, they're not necessarily People at that time didn't necessarily look at guns as being uh, evil in and of themselves. I know people who loathe guns uh, just as, as objects of distaste and evil. But back then they were tools and um, not necessarily at odds with God's will or their own consciences. Um, I think when, Go ahead. When, uh, when uh, years after Samuel Colt died, his uh, widow built a uh, church, um, and uh, in it there were uh, sculpted motifs of uh, revolvers. Hmm. Uh, 
So it didn't necessarily think that there was a conflict there. Um, today, uh, the passion over guns is very different. Um, the, the debate is intense. That doesn't mean there wasn't debate back then. Uh, there, uh, poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, uh, back in the uh, early part of the 19th century, visited uh, the Springfield Armory, uh, which was a massive uh, enterprise in Massachusetts that made guns, and it was very, uh, very uh, forward-looking in its uh, in industrial systems. And it was, became actually became a tourist attraction. And when Longfellow and his uh, new wife decided to visit Springfield Armory, she was a pacifist, and she inspired him to write uh, an ode, write a write a poem, a peace poem about the uh, arsenal at Springfield, and which which he did. Now. In the case of Remington, he began by making gun barrels, but his big advancement was that he used steel, not iron. Was steel just coming into use at the time? Well, some of the steel was. Part of it was the way he made the steel, um, but uh, and and his and his efficiency in his operation. But the way he made the steel was something. He was he was a lesser figure uh, for me because. They weren't early on in trying. They weren't uh, the Remington Company wasn't early on in trying to develop uh, repeating weapons to the extent that the others were, and that was really my draw. I almost, I almost left Remington out of my story. But he uh, did. He did go from manufacturing rifle barrels to making complete guns for the U.S. military. Oh, sure he did. Oh yeah, yeah, he did, and he was a huge producer during the Civil War, and he also made a variety of other products as well. I mean, they did ma- made agricultural implements. Uh, and eventually got into typewriters. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, we know uh, the Remingtons. Yeah. Oh yes. Uh, and uh, but the, the the people who interested me most were the were the folks who were the uh, originators of the uh, rapid fire systems. What uh, some might loosely call the assault weapons of the day, though that was that's kind of a lo- loaded term. Not to make a joke, it's uh, hmm. it, it it carries with it a lot of baggage. Car- is loaded. I got but it. Those, but those, uh, those, um, the the individuals who really were trying to create the new systems were the guys who interested me. Would include Smith and Smith, Horace Smith, and Daniel Baird Wesson, and Oliver Winchester. And Winchester, somebody was somebody who had no interest in guns at all um, until he uh, decided to uh, use his uh, gains and profits from another venture into firearms. But this is also about changes uh, in, uh, well, in the way things were manufactured, but also uh, the, uh, in the case of Remington, uh, the, uh, the newly created Erie Canal plays a, a role in his story. Yes, it does, because they, uh, it, the Erie Canal opened up a system uh, of transportation, obviously, and he could get his, his rifle barrels uh, to market. Um, through them. In fact, he, um, the uh, elder wife uh, at Remington, moved the factory to uh, the shores of the Erie Canal about the time it was being built. And they used to go on the bridge and open up a hole in the bridge uh, or sometimes just drop over the side gun barrels uh, to be shipped to be made elsewhere. And then eventually uh, fully complete guns. Uh, what I also found interesting in that period of time, we're talking about the Erie Canal opening up things, is that the, there is a center of productivity that included all of these characters. It, they all live within in, 90 miles of one another at one yeah, point or another. Like, yeah, that's right. It was, it was in the Connecticut River Valley, which was a, a place of marvelous industry and inventiveness. In fact, it, got dubbed the, it was called Gun Valley. By many, it was like the Silicon Valley of its time. You had uh, machinists creating things. Uh, you had uh, new uh, refinements in other inventions, all depending on the complex systems of water flow that that uh, went into and out of the Connecticut River, because the water flow requ- made the wheels of the factories turn before uh, steam took over. But they, they were all working in the early days of the machine age and the Industrial Revolution. And you write yes. that gun manufacturing was inextricably linked to the rise of mechanized production and interchangeable parts. Yes, because the, the interchangeable parts was something that the uh, 
it had been sort of a holy grail for uh, gun manufacturers for, for manufacturing many things. And the idea of one part could fit in into a, another uh, example of whatever the finished product is and fit perfectly. Uh, this was an idea that actually began to be worked on in France. And um, Thomas Jefferson got interested in it. And the older Eli Whitney got interested in it. So that he, uh, and he made a, the older Eli Whitney made a pitch to the government that he could turn out a lot of guns um, quickly and that they could all be interchanged. And he never quite made it, um, though his reputation is such that the people give him credit for it. But Colt moved it along substantially. Uh, and so much so that the, uh, that the British were agog over how much uh, the interchangeable interchangeability had been successfully demonstrated by Colt. Uh, they sent, uh, the British sent over to the United States in 1854 a commission to study uh, American, uh, American system, which became called the American system of uh, manufacture, to study how we were doing. And interchangeable parts, though not perfected, was a major draw. And that kind of thing uh, was applicable to other industries as well. And were we exporting they, all of these weapons to other part, other countries, countries in we Europe? Were, we, we, we were exporting some. We were also importing some. Um, at the time of the Civil War, we had to bring a whole lot more into the country because we didn't have enough uh, guns here. But uh, eventually, especially when the... Uh, after the Civil War, there was an enormous uh, sale of guns to other countries all over the place, all over the world. Uh, Egypt, uh, Japan, the, the Papal States, um, France, um, so that it was quite successful. They, um, so people were beginning to look at the United States as a, a source of uh, production of fine guns. And they weren't wrong. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. There was a gun that won the West. There was a man among the best. The fastest gun or man alive. Back with John Bainbridge Jr., his book, Gun Barons, The Weapons That Transformed America, The Men Who Invented Them, is published by St. Martin's Press. He's a former reporter and lawyer and the co-author of a book about the plot to kill Harry Truman, something very different. But this book uh, is very much about, uh, um, well, not just the development of weapons during the 19th century, but also uh, the development of, of American industry. Um, let, let's talk about another person uh, whose name is highly rec recognizable, Horace Smith, uh, who went into business with Daniel Wesson. You describe him as a constant tinkerer. How did he create that gun manufacturing business with Wesson? Well, they were two very different personalities, for one thing. Uh, Horace Smith um, was grew up uh, in uh, a family that worked at the Springfield Armory, the big operation I mentioned before. And Horace Smith started out as an assistant bayonet forger, making bayonets time after time after time. And it was a big operation, not a small gunsmith shop. And what he did was he learned to make metal behave. And then he started slowly moved up in the system. He tended to be a methodical man, from what I can gather. And uh, I always have to be careful about making broad, sweeping statements about individuals from the past whom I don't know, but uh, I, I think we have to do it sometimes, and I guess I can with him. He, uh, he eventually tried a number of different things, including making a whaling gun. He went to work for um, a company that made um, what are called pepper box pistols, and they were essentially multi-shot weapons, but they were several barrels all turning, to, all turning, lining up one at a time. They were different uh, from Samuel Colt's revolver, it, uh, so much so that they weren't that useful in war, and they weren't very accurate. Uh, 
but he started to work on those, and he also made a few other other things. And he was brought in to change a uh, to improve a rifle that our friend Walter Hunt, the safety pin guy, had uh, made and invented. And he worked at that at this little shop at this operation in Windsor, Vermont, called Robinson Lawrence. And we think it was there that he met Daniel Baird Wesson. And Wesson was also making assorted uh, guns at the time. And they got together and decided that they would um, try to market a, uh, a gun that, uh, that would shoot multiple times without reloading with a magazine under the barrel. Uh, and, and they named their company Volcanic Repeating well, Arms. It's an yeah, odd because name. Because the thing, it's supposedly the thing shot up like a volcano. But there, all, there was a lot of publicity about um, and, and advertising about guns back then um, in local papers. And uh, they always tried to make a little bit more of a gun than was justifiable. Um, I guess that's the nature of advertising. But Wesson was a completely different guy. He was younger, um, and he didn't start out working in a large factory. He started out, he was interested in guns from the very beginning. He started out working for his older brother, whose name was Edwin. Now, Edwin uh, was a skilled rifle maker. He was very, very good at making fine weapons. And their father thought, well, this is a good way for Daniel to take care of himself and learn a trade and be useful. Um, they, they wanted him to go in the shoe business, but Daniel Weston didn't want anything to do with shoes. He liked guns. So off he went to work with Edwin. And it was at that time when people were still being indentured. And there was a formal contract that their father signed, uh, and their sister witnessed, um, and that Daniel was assigned to work for Edwin. And the father would get paid for this. Uh, and Dan, and he would instruct Daniel on schooling and all the rest of that. So he learned the art of fine gun making one on one by one. And what differentiated uh, what they did from what others were making to the point where they became quite popular during the Civil War? What they what they were making was well, Wesson and Smith got together and they made these. They made uh, this this um, repeating gun that didn't really do well. Um, what they what they eventually ended up doing uh, was uh, they made a proper uh, they they bought a, a patent from somebody they actually they li- licensed it a fellow named Roland White who invented a uh, revolve a a, a bored through cylinder for a revolver. Now that means that you didn't have to stuff the powder and ball in the front end. You opened up the back end and you shoved in a self-contained cartridge, which I talked about before, the self-contained cartridge. Mm-hmm. They had a lock on that. And that's what began to make them their fortune. Their original attempt with the under-the-barrel uh, magazine uh, loaded from the, with the Hunt, Holder Hunt's idea, that was eventually acquire, acquired. That, that um, operation was require, acquired by Oliver Winchester, mm-hmm. Edward Winchester, and he eventually made it a success. Um, so these guys were going back and forth uh, between various ventures, and, event- and eventually Smith and Wesson made a success with their self-contained cartridges loaded from the rear in revolvers. And what was neat about that was that Colt didn't have access to that patent. He didn't first didn't care. So if Colt wanted to make it, uh, make a revolver with a bore-through cylinder, he'd have to fight Smith and Wesson for it in court, and he decided not to. Well, there are a number of lawsuits in this uh, story and threats of lawsuits that helped some of these men and hindered others. Um, you mentioned Oliver Fisher Winchester, who had drifted from carpentry to the clothing business to the firearms trade and finally into politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he uh, he became interested in po- – he was always interested in politics a little bit. Um, he he uh, started out his professional life, uh, serious professional life, in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, he left Boston and came down here. Uh, well, I, I say here because I'm in the Baltimore area. He went from Boston and to he, Baltimore at a time when that trip, that trip was quite difficult in the early 19th yeah, it was, century. Yeah, it was difficult. He was only he was only in his late teens, and he came down and uh, to take advantage, uh, I believe, of a an inheritance. He had a much older half brother. 
who left him uh, and his siblings some land in Baltimore. And, uh, he had connections, so he came down here and tried to make it work. He had a stepfather uh, up in Massachusetts who didn't care much for raising somebody else's children, and he decided to make his fortune here. And Baltimore was a, a booming, uh, interesting place back then. So Winchester, uh, he's, when he also decided to launch his clothing business, he sold shirts and made <laughs> shirts uh, and came up with a system of uh, cutting the collars right that improved the way it fit on men with suspenders. And he patented that uh, in February of 1848. And with that, he started to make money, serious money, because he uh, linked up with a New York um, a clothing uh, retailer and uh, distributor, and off they went together to form a lifelong uh, partnership, including with the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. But Winchester was basically a Whig. He was a a liberal um, and um, was interested in the advancement of the country. So when he was up to Connecticut, he began to, uh, they wanted somebody to represent the industrial interests uh, in the in in an election campaign in 1866. And so he uh, threw his lot in there, became lieutenant governor. Uh, for one year, didn't do much as a lieutenant governor, as far as I could tell, and I certainly looked. Um, but he, uh, uh, so he was there, dabbling in politics. Now, one of the interesting stories that you tell is uh, involves Christopher Spencer, the creator of the Spencer repeating rifle. He was an abolitionist, uh, uh, and uh, didn't he demonstrate his weapon on the lawn of the White House for President Lincoln, who didn't care for his gun? No, he didn't. Uh, Lincoln had this is marvelous uh, uh, repeating rifle that Spencer uh, invented, and he was uh, he was a he was one of these comp- compulsive uh, tinkerers. He couldn't stop putting things together, and he invented this rifle, and he was backed in it by uh, some people named uh, Cheney, who had a huge silk mill. And in the middle of the Civil War, some troops began to use his rifle, and apparently Lincoln um, got the test. Two of them, because Lincoln was in, Lincoln was a gun guy. He used to um, he used to go and, and shoot guns with the uh, with the uh, naval naval Washington uh, commandant of the naval yard. And, shoot guns um, at targets or at uh, at targets at animals. At targets. No, no, no. Because guns were also he, used he, for hunting, obviously. That's right. But he, Lincoln, uh, as far as I gather, wasn't much of a hunter. But he did was interested in mechanics. He had this fascination with uh, with mechanical things, and actually had a patent of himself. He's the only president ever to have a patent, and that was for a pontoon system that would lift boats over shallow waters. And but he, it was never made, never never was manufactured. Though I did find an interesting uh, article uh, fairly recently from a couple of mechanical engineers that said, you know, the system that Lincoln came up with wasn't bad. But anyway, Lincoln, Lincoln gave lectures on patents uh, and, and everything. So he was interested in, the, in, in guns, too. Somebody had uh, given him, um, he had access to a Spencer repeating rifle, and he couldn't make it work. Just, so he told a, a general who was interested in getting them, oh, you, I'm not going to back this. I don't, you know, it's no good. The word of that got back to the Spencer company, who immediately decided to send its ebullient and um, uh, energetic young inventor, Spencer, to the White House. He said, take your gun with you. So Spencer goes up to, the, up to Washington, down to Washington, I guess, and he brings a rifle wrapped up in a cloth, and he goes to the White House and says, is the president around? And he says, yeah, well, he's, he's in. He's over there. So Spencer goes in with his gun, shows Lincoln, and Lincoln says, oh, let me see. See the inwardness of this thing. I said, we don't have time for shooting now, but will you come back tomorrow at 2 o'clock? We'll go out and shoot it. So Spencer does. He comes back 2 o'clock next afternoon, and Lincoln is there with a the naval attache and a son, and they go out and say, well, let's go see where we go. And they stop by the War Department on the way. Lincoln said, well, let's, let's see if uh, Secretary of War Stanton wants to come with us. And the son goes in and says, no, Stanton's too busy. And Lincoln says, well, they do what they want to over there. And off they go, and they shoot the gun. Um, it didn't go well Lincoln, at first, did it? Well, you know, they, the naval attache stuck up a board, and uh, Lincoln uh, shot it. Uh, his first shot wasn't so good, but then he, he got a little bit better. 
Then he handed it to Spencer and said, let's see what the inventor can do. And, of course, the inventor shot better than Lincoln did. Mm-hmm. And Lincoln said, well, you're younger than I am. It's your, your invention. But that the board, by the way, that they shot is at the uh, Springfield Museum in Springfield, uh, uh, Illinois, with the, with, uh, with the bullet holes still in it, of course. <laughs> but uh, there was a story that circulated uh, not long after that that said that Lincoln's approval of the Spencer rifle is what led to its adoption in general by the military. And that, that that's, uh, I don't believe, is true. Uh, another historian who's taken a serious look at that says, nah, that's that's... That's unlikely. But the uh, but, but, finish your thought. I'm sorry. I say, but but the gun was used largely by by uh, by cavalry to to great effect. I don't, it didn't change the result of the Civil War. Well, it was um, used by the U.S. Navy and then later by the Army. Uh, yeah. it, it didn't well, it was, provide it was, an advantage over the weapons that Confederate soldiers had. Uh, it did. Uh, it did have an advantage in several battles, uh, including one. Uh, in 1863, shortly before uh, or, uh, Gettysburg, called the Battle of Hoover's Gap, in which uh, a uh, rather uh, flamboyant and charismatic, well, not flamboyant, more charismatic uh, colonel named John T. Wilder, he had armed his, his troops with Spencer rifles, and they were outnumbered, um, but uh, they kept pouring lead on the uh, advancing Confederates that... Uh, that stunned everybody. I said, "What kind of hellfire weapon have you guys got?" One of the one of the prisoners said. So yeah, it, it, they made an, it, it had an enormous effect. Though another historian said that it was probably the greatest effect was all the noise that the repeating mm-hmm. rifles made. Um, they would sound like a, a whole army out there and scared the opposition. It would terrify. It would terrify yeah. me. <laughs> My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is John Bainbridge, Jr., who's written a book called Gun Barons, The Weapons That Transformed America and the Men Who Invented Them. It's published by St. Martin's Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Although these weapons were capable of firing many times without reloading, didn't the new guns face some government backlash because they used so much ammunition? Uh, they did. There was a particular uh, general uh, who was head of ordnance named James Wolfe Ripley, who didn't like new weapons like that. Well, that's like, he didn't like repeating cartridge rifles, and he opposed them every chance he got. Uh, now he has been vilified by a lot of the uh, by a number of historians who say that he just impeded progress. Yet there was reason for that at the time. Um, there was these guns would, would require special ammunition uh, that he was afraid that they, people would just keep shooting until they're uh, with that with, uh, with abandon would waste ammunition. You'd have to provide special ammunition for each different kind of gun. And the ordinance department was getting inundated with new designs, some of them really strange. Uh, and so he said, we, you know, we know how to deal with the old Springfield rifle muskets. Let's keep with them. Um, uh, so he, he, he battled them. Uh, in fact, uh, 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 Christopher Spencer called him fossilized because he was uh, so averse to new weapons. Uh, and, uh, so, but Lincoln, as I said, was a real interest, was really interested in guns. He had a, his secretary said it's sometimes his, his own secretary's office looked like a, like a, like a, uh, gun shop and he would test other guns too. On on his own, there was a thing called a mitrailleuse, which is a was a French weapon, and it was like a Gatling gun. You turn a crank, and it would shoot a lot. It would shoot repeatedly. Uh, never much of a success here, but Lincoln was tested that one as well, and the, it was so underpowered, the one that he was the one that he was using, that the bullets bounced back around the shins of the peop, of the uh, spectators, and Lincoln thought that was that was a hilarious. But, you know, if, if Lincoln was in charge of the Ordnance Department, uh, things probably would have been different. Well, but he couldn't get involved in everything. Well, despite the government resistance, weren't uh, they often sold directly to the soldiers, sometimes as they were going into battle? Uh, sometimes, yes. Uh, and uh, a lot of times, a lot of times people would, would arm their own, arm themselves. There was a... Uh, 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 the fellow I mentioned a few moments ago, John T. Wilder, 
he wanted to get Winchester's Henry rifle. That's what his first goal was. Winchester and Spencer were competing for Army contracts, uh, and Winchester couldn't make them fast enough. These were these were um, the, the kind of if you saw Henry rifle today, it would look very much like a modern Winchester lever action rifle. But he couldn't he couldn't make them fast enough. So Spencer was on a tour of the battlefield, and he ran into Wilder, and he said, "I can make them for you." So Wilder decided to go with Spencer, and he actually um, said he went and got a loan from his hometown bank in Indiana to pay for the guns with the idea that the soldiers would buy them, he would probably reimburse them, uh, and eventually, uh, hopefully, the Ordnance Department would pay for them. But they were ready to pay for them themselves. Uh, it turns out that the Ordnance Department came through, and they didn't have to reach into their own pockets. But there were a number of, uh, of uh, units that furnished their own guns. There was a particular um, colonel who was actually involved with the Cheney, right, with the Cheney firm, um, who promised enlistees that they'd be armed with Spencer rifles. They'd provide them if they, uh, if, if they joined. So I imagine he was providing those himself. Well, after the war, uh, the, the, these manufacturers promoted guns not only for soldiers but for everyone and also made themselves quite wealthy in the process. Uh, they were not just for hunting. Uh, they were often used for both lawful and unlawful activities. Oh yes, oh yes. Uh, no, they those folks. They wanted the market, and uh, they they pushed for wherever they could sell the guns uh, as they could. Um, Winchester became fabulously wealthy. Colt, so did Colt. Um, Smith and Wesson each became the richest people in Connecticut. So all of them had done did extremely well. Um, they were. Uh, I would say Winchester qualifies as a nineteenth-century capitalist. Because where, whereas Smith and Wesson were inventors that, that uh, succeeded with their own inventions, and so did Colt, um, though he died young, Winchester uh, made his fortune first, as I mentioned, with shirts. He didn't know anything about guns. He really didn't care about us, as far as we could tell. But he knew an opportunity, and that's when he began to sniff around at the little company, the Volcanic Repeating Arms Company that Smith and Wesson had. And... Um, they were looking for investors. Winchester said, okay, I'm going to invest. Uh, and uh, he began to get... So it was, for him, it was a money-making opportunity. Uh, Smith and Wesson, they were the inventors, and they had a couple of uh, venture capitalists who got in to try to boost their, their fortunes early on, um, and the venture capitalists lost money. Smith and Wesson kept their patents, and eventually they succeeded. Is it fair to say that the gun barons accelerated the decline of American craftsmen and uh, and the rise of large corporations? I would say that they they were they were part of that whole wave. Uh, they, that during the course of their rise, uh, the, the old small craftsmanship, the people like Edwin Wesson, who I mentioned, who made guns by hand, uh, the, the people in the in the old gunsmith shops, they were. They were going the way of the dinosaur. Uh, and so you had large factories taking over. That was happening in a whole lot of industries. But the gun barons, they were part of it. Um, and that's why they became, that's why they became so wealthy. So uh, did they play they a role in, in lifting the young country, the United States, into the forefront of the world's industrial powers? I would say they did. They were they were some part of many. Their the quality of their of what they were producing was noticed, and uh, and the uh, as I said, it was the the American system of manufacturers which got the attention of Europe, and especially Britain, that was the who was the uh, creator of the industrial revolution or the first the first industrial revolutionary. It was in guns. It was happening. It was also happening in in textiles, and of course, it would eventually continue on into uh, automobiles. Uh, and other ventures. Now but we you have, find that. Go ahead. You see, but you find that some of the people who were involved in the gun making business uh, took their skills elsewhere. Somebody was training at Robbins and Lawrence uh, in guns. Eventually worked with developing uh, sewing, sewing machines, running a sewing machine factory. Typewriters, as you point out. The prolific um, and the prolific inventor. He ended up 
making an automatic screw machine, which became important um, among his 42 patents. So uh, these guys were, uh, these guys made their mark uh, <laughs> with violence and uh, with uh, with uh, creations that that, uh, that caused violence, and um, but they also created uh, they were creative uh, individuals in their own right, um, whose breadth of uh, intellectual endeavor was, uh, I think, impressive. I want to thank you so much for being on our show and talking about this. I hope we haven't left too much out, have we? I don't think so, except that well, one thing I got mentioned is that one of the striking things about these characters is that they, so many of them made promises they couldn't uh, mm. live up to initially. They started with nothing. Uh, Robbins and Lawrence started with no factory, uh, no uh, workforce, no nothing, no building, and they signed a contract to make guns for the, for the Army. Same way with uh, Spencer. Uh, they didn't have any factory at all, and they got a contract during the Civil War to make guns. They had no workforce, no machinery, uh, no place to build it, so they rented a uh, part of a, a, a piano factory in Boston and got going and eventually turned out the guns. That's the kind of boldness that uh, I think uh, is important. They also never gave up, never to, gave up. have to leave it there, unfortunately. My great thanks okay. to John Bainbridge, Jr. His book, Gun Barons, The Weapons That Transformed America and the Men Who Invented Them, is published by St. Martin's Press. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Uh, if you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org. We need your help to, to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Gun Barons, The Weapons That Transformed America, The Men Who Invented Them by John Bainbridge, Jr. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. We'll say thank you with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $15 or more. But either way, we hope you'll do it now because WBAI is the only station in the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. Please help keep it alive with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us tomorrow when my guest, Joe Zambat-Lucia, will discuss his book, The New Political Capitalism. We'll see you then.